Hey, you got your Christmas bells out, fittingly for today's episode. No, that's the that's that's the dog. Is it dressed up like Christmas? No, it's collar makes a lot of noise. Hunter, you're Hugh. Uh, Prada Day Plus is the name of the show. Uh, this show, we talk about classic movies, both um, older classics uh, and, um, you know, recently minted classics. Uh, so what classics are we going to discuss on this week's pod? And the pod, podcast itself is, of course, a classic, a modern classic, if you will. Indeed. Uh, we will be discussing uh, Paul Feig's Christmas Confection. <laughs> Last Christmas. Yeah, last Christmas. And Hugh, I believe we're starting a new product that we're going to immediately abandon for over a month. <laughs> Not immediately. Uh, just in time for Thanksgiving, we're going to look at some famous turkeys. What uh, what do we got on the menu for tonight, Hugh? We will be examining Fim Vendor's 2000 mm-hmm. film. Yep, yep. The Million Dollar Hotel. And what have we, what, 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 like a, a fine wine of a film have we paired that with? We'll be coupling that with uh, Ingmar Bergman's 1977 film, The Serpent's Egg, starring one David Carradine. Now, these films, um, surprisingly, have, have some similarities, which we'll get into. They both have Nazis in them. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into it, before we fucking get into it, we have a very important uh, trio of segments we have to rush through mm-hmm. uh, first armor of the gods what you wear on your body tell me about the armor of god what you wearing on your body mm-hmm. go you what what cloth doth Adorn thine body today. I'm actually wearing an entirely different outfit today mm. because I've just returned from the screening of last Christmas. So I'm still in my outside clothes. Last Christmas. Which means I'm in my uh, trademark skinny black jeans. Gave me my heart. It's a, it's a look I'm going for. I'm wearing faux suede shoes that I would politely request you not step on. Mm. And I'm wearing a navy blue t-shirt and, uh, you know, some underwear and a belt and stuff like that. Mm. Throw leather belt. Mm. How about you, sir? How are you clad today? I'm wearing a blue and black um, short-sleeved button-up shirt um, that has sort of bizarre characters or symbols on it. And I'm wearing a pair of red or salmon pants. And topping off with some uh, gray and white sort of uh, checkered socks that have red toes and heels 
and a black heels heart. Heels and toes. Toes and heels. And a black heels part. And, toes. and a black part around where my um, shin is. That's what I'm wearing. Mm. Now that that great segment is out of the way, now that the audience has been cued into what we are wearing, what is outside of our bodies, now I have to discuss what was or is inside of our bodies. Mm, well put. With the great segment, Wheels on Meals. Reels on Meals. Reels on Meals. Reels on Meals on Reels on Meals on Reels. Reels on Meals on Reels on Reels on Reels. What's in your body? <laughs> um, okay, so breakfast was the same. Uh, please, please. Um, so this might not, this might be someone's first ever podcast. So let's uh, let's get into what is your regular um, regular breakfast deal. My regular breakfast is uh, cheap home brand bread, mm. toasted, mm. Um, layered with generic spread and either Vegemite or Marmite. In this case, Vegemite, mm. and I accompany that with a delicious cup of drip coffee. Mm. But it is uh, 1.35 p.m. here. And in addition to aforementioned breakfast, uh-huh. I am presently drinking a cup of tea. Mm. So, look, I'm mixing it up. Different wardrobe, different meals. But your brand new hue. A new hue of hue. Um, what about you? Well, Hugh, um, I've had occasion to eat several meals today. Mm. I was in a bit of a rush this morning. So I started the day with a nap. By my, well, my breakfast has become pretty regular, which is muesli and yogurt. But uh, what's separated from the norm is that instead of having a cup of coffee, I bought a Starbucks-branded coffee energy beverage on my way to work at 8 in the morning. That's disgusting. <laughs> uh, I won't have you judge me. But what is that? Like, how does that manifest as a beverage? Um, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, <laughs> like it's a caffeine Starbucks energy drink thing, but what, like, what does it taste like? How does it arrive in your mouth? <laughs> it tastes like, it tastes like sort of a tepid mocha flavor. It comes in a can. Okay. Um, it doesn't taste bad necessarily, but I don't know. It's not a pleasant flavor. I'm not drinking it because I like the taste. You just needed the hit. Yeah, I needed that, that to be punched in the stomach. Uh, then about halfway through the day, say around a one o'clock, I had my lunch, which consisted of a cup of water, of filtered tap water. You filter New York tap water? That's sacrilege. Uh, that's, I guess when they boil my body, it won't be like, as good as the bagels or whatever. So I had to have a filtered water, paper cup of filtered water, some leftover mac and cheese, homemade mac and cheese, homemade baked mac and cheese. Please, please share your mac and cheese process with the listeners. Well, Hugh, first I make a sauce. Then I put some... A bechamel? No. Well, maybe. I don't know what a bechamel is. <laughs> That's the sauce that is the basis of the macaroni cheese sauce. Um, well, I use evaporated milk and put cheese in it. Oh, you use that Serious Eats one. Yeah, okay. No, I used a, I used a variation on that. So I did that, and then I baked it for 30 minutes. And I added some paprika and some other spices. Yeah, that actually doesn't have a bechamel sauce. Yep. So there you go. Which is why it's like... The cheat version. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, ma- I ate that, and alongside I had a cornbread muffin, 
And then uh, after work, I went and got myself a little snack, uh, which consisted of a pack of my favorite um, caffeinated gum. It's a Japanese brand called Black Black. Mm-hmm. I'm quite fond of. And in addition to that, I had a uh, Japanese um, sort of Gatorade-ish um, electrolyte beverage called Pokari Sweat. Have you heard of this beverage? Nope. Uh, Sounds gross. It's, it's delicious. Uh, I wanted to treat myself with a little uh, electrolyte drink and, and um, energy gum. You know, I'm a simple man of simple taste. I'm no marketing genius, but I would avoid using the word sweat in the name of an energy drink. Well, you know, it's a Japanese brand, so... This is a little off topic. Did you see that uh, stupid, I think, I don't know if it was New York Times or which, which source it was, but it was like, recent imported film sensations from Japan, Korea, and China have all featured violence and anger. Why are these films so angry? It's because they are reaction to the traditional Confucian philosophy. Oh my god, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. Surely that wasn't the failing New York Times. Let's see. It was indeed the New York Times, so... Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I can't believe it. It's so dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so anyway, back back on track. What is interesting about the uh, Pakari sweat that I drink, it's actually a uh, Korean... The, the grocery store they go to is a Korean grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's like Pan-Asian, you know, and they have a lot of stuff from a variety of countries, but the specific version of Pakari stuff that they have is a, like a Korean version of the, the Japanese original. Right. So good stuff. Delicious Pakari sweat. Um, what does it taste like? Uh, it tastes like, uh, like electronic beverage. I don't know. <laughs> like Gatorade. No, it does not taste like Gatorade. Well then your description doesn't work. It's, it's hard. It's hard to describe what it tastes like, but it is good. You have a platform to describe exactly what it tastes like, and you just I don't, blew I don't it. want to. I don't. I don't want to, Hugh. Um, so anyway, so I move move on. Moving on from that particular snack, I went home. I made dinner, which consisted of a um, some sort of miso dressing salad uh, and pasta salad, uh, sort of with a Greek vinaigrette and cucumbers, red onions, red onion, red onion, red pepper. Um, Capers, olives, um, feta, and Swiss cheese, and noodles all mixed in. So those two salads, and then I had some garlic right on the side. That's what I have for dinner. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm eating my dessert, which consists of some chocolate cookies and a can of ginger beer. That's all the meals I've had today, Theo. All right, so uh, now let's move on to Air Diary, our, our most popular segment. So today, I've actually been outside. I've actually walked for about an hour in the elements. And I've experienced light drizzle that uh, forced me to take out my umbrella. Mm. And, then I, and then the sun came out and I put away my umbrella again. So I got it slightly damp for no reason. Okay, great. So outside today was a little chilly oh, and windy, and that's it. I haven't given people enough detail. No, I think I, I just think said I've been outside and drizzled. They don't know if it was like really warm and humid. Plenty of fucking like. detail, you, you, you simpering buffoon. We we didn't give like the metrics, right? Uh, I don't care. You know what, Hugh? This uh, I, I, I this segment is terrible. <laughs> we should we should get rid of it. 
We're not getting rid of it. It has a theme song. <laughs> no, no. So did, so did, uh, we're not dra- putting it in the vault. So did Drag Out Forever. And where, where's <laughs> that shit right now? Air Diaries is like an inoffensive segment. Like, it takes two seconds. I mean, I'm extending it now. Drag, drag Out Forever only took five minutes. That was the point. <laughs> this is less than five minutes. Uh, but sure you have to prepare is. for Drag Out Forever. You have to think of something. So what? Anyway, anyway, I'll start that again. Quickly. We'll quickly do Air Diaries. Quickly. All right, ready? So I've been outside today... 16 degrees Celsius, 60.8 degrees Fahrenheit. I was quite pleasant. I just wore uh, my you were, t-shirt you were and quite, a jacket You were quite pleasant? That's what you just said, you, you dipshit. I said it was quite ple- pre- no. pleasant. <laughs> that was a Christmas Yeah, slip. okay, yeah, I believe that. Fine, I'll say it again. You want me to do another <laughs> yeah, take? Yeah, I do, I, I do what you do another take. I segment? do what you do another Fine. take. I've been uh, outside today. Because I had to venture to the cinema to watch Last Christmas, which we'll discuss shortly. And during that time, I experienced a little bit of drizzle. It was 16 degrees Celsius, which is 60.8 degrees Fahrenheit, um, but relatively pleasant. Um, so I was able to get away with wearing just a T-shirt with my jacket over the top, which is my signature look that I invented. How about you, sir? Yeah, uh, today was a little windy and a little chilly. Uh, a little cold. Give me the fucking degrees. That's all you want. You don't want. To, you want to want the story like you just gave me. Like I, you just forced me to endure. That's right. Uh, apparently, right now it's fifty-one degrees Fahrenheit, which is ten point five 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 six degrees Celsius. So. Isn't that interesting? We're only six degrees away from one another. Celsius. No, it's not interesting. I'm sorry. Sorry. It is interesting. It's it's we're on opposite sides of the world. It's a different season. It's amazing. It is int- interesting. I said interesting. Yeah, let's let's uh, play it back right now. And, uh, let's let's play it back and we'll listen. Yeah, okay. It is interesting. It's it's see. <laughs> okay, I guess I'll uh, cut off my peaky finger in shame. All right, moving on. Hey, you gave me a heart. Say hey, cause my little part, okay. Now I've got your heart And you don't have a heart Cause you gave me a heart Last Christmas. This is your baby, so I feel like you should um, be the one who introduces it. I feel like you should be the one who introduces it. And then I can uh, disclose my feelings first. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Because I'm still processing it, right? Okay, so Last Christmas is a movie about a woman. And what's that woman's name? I don't remember. <laughs> No, I, I, I do. I do. I do. I do. I do. I do. Her name is Katerina. But. But she hates being called that. Uh, so she insisted I would call her Kate. Now, Kate is a girl who, who likes the simple things in life. Drinking, having sex with attractive strangers, working in a Christmas shop that's run by Michelle Yeoh. Um... That's about it. She's auditioning for plays. She's not very good. She's sort of the lovable loser type, I think, is the the uh, character type they're going for. She's a rom-com klutz. I, I guess. Yeah, she's kind of a klutz. She's more of an extreme case because she has other issues. But She weaves a, a, a trail of destruction in her way. Her it. life is a bit of a mess. Yeah. Her mom wants to get her on the phone and keeps on talking about something about the doctor. Um, so, there's all sorts of pressures. Her sister's angry at her, because she is destructive. 
She's just been thrown out of her apartment, I think. Needs to find somewhere to live. Bunch of bunch of things happening. Um, but who should come into her life but the mysterious and attractive stranger whose name is Tom, I think. <laughs> is that it? Yes. Okay, Tom. I don't remember his last name. Uh, Tom Tom. <laughs> <laughs> how, much, how, much, how much better would this be if, if Tom were played by Jeremy Davies? <laughs> <laughs> With the same mannerisms. Yeah, yeah, the same haircut. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But Tom is played by uh, uh, Cuban mannequin Henry Golding. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, he, he comes to her life in... Uh, with his heart of gold. He's a mannequin who comes to life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like Mannequin 2 or Mannequin 1. <laughs> um, let me fucking get through this. So he has a heart of gold and a simple little life philosophy that uh, it seems to be turning things around uh, and pointing her up. But he, there seems to be something mysterious about it. They keep on running into each other in strange circumstances, in stranger circumstances than might typically befall a... Uh, 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 rom-com couple to be. Um, they go on a few magical dates, but something's off about this stranger, and he seems to be refusing Kate's stabs at intimacy. Hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a pretty good uh, setup for the world of Last Christmas. Uh, let's see, you want me to go ahead and um, reveal the old twist there? We'll talk about the twist. Okay. So we're just warning our listeners that if you do not want... The twist of last Christmas, and it does have a twist. <laughs> Spoiled. It does have a twist. That's true. Then uh, stop listening now. Go watch the movie. Come back. Okay. Resume podcast. Yes. Welcome back. <laughs> so, Hugh, um, now that I've summarized last Christmas, uh, I guess it'd be my question to you is, will this be the last time you watch last Christmas? Or will it become a perennial holiday favorite for you? Um... It's probably going to be the last time I watch Last Christmas, and I only qualify that with probably to allow for the possibility of showing this movie to somebody who hasn't heard of it. <laughs> I could see that being an enjoyable experience, actually. Otherwise, it, like if I wasn't showing it for somebody and it was just for my own viewing pleasure, mm. I would not have a reason to return to this movie, which isn't necessarily to say it's a bad movie. We will get to that. Just that you don't you, you don't have a desire to immediately return to it. Yeah, I can't I can't really foresee a, a circumstance other than the one I outlined in which I would return to this movie for any reason. So look, do I want my eight dollars back? Maybe. Maybe maybe I do. If the cinema offered a refund, I would take it. <laughs> but but do I regret the experience of watching this film. Do I regret having that experience? Uh-huh. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. So what I'm saying is I wish this were a Netflix original. <laughs> so you just have to feel guilty about paying for it? No, it's not just it's not just for budgetary reasons, or that is part of it. Mm. I would prefer not to have to spend $8 under any circumstance. But I do think it has, like, the ingredients of a good, you know, mid-tier christmas rom-com that netflix would commission mm. i think amelia clark slides effortlessly into the my life is a mess klutz character we outlined earlier but here i, I i'm gonna take i'm gonna take a little quibble with you here this movie's not really a, a, a romance 
No, we'll, we'll get we'll get to we'll that. Get to we that. haven't we we'll haven't spoiled it for our listeners yet. But I'm saying the ingredients are there, mm. right? You've assembled the like the superficial ingredients of a rom com. That's the point of the film is to have that veneer, and then there's a twist, mm. right? And I think Henry Golding was born to be Prince Charming. Yeah, I get you. He's a particularly good Prince Charming as well because even when the role is fairly one-dimensional and perhaps dull, he remains charming. He's he's reliably charming, I think. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I, I feel like he's he might be a serial killer. <laughs> well, I mean, we I talked about this on the episode in which we discussed Crazy Rich Asians. He does have a bit of that Billy Zane vibe. Mm, there's a little there's a little plastic quality to him that's disturbing so you could you could certainly twist him to like a villainous role mm. and it wouldn't be that difficult it would kind of fit but I, I do think he's good at being charming and handsome mm. which is his default yeah like i could i can definitely like picture a worse version of this with another actor in that role sure so yeah we do have these ingredients that that could work just for like a mid-tier straight ahead rom-com kind of wish it was that yeah. <laughs> Yes. On one level, I wish it was just that, and it was just literally a, a yes. romance between Amelia Clark and Henry Golding. Yes. That would be nice. Yes. But part of me is also glad that we got whack. <laughs> we got this. <laughs> yes. I I knew there was a twist, and I knew it was like a ridiculous twist, but it was still so pleasing to experience it fresh. You knew it before you watched the film, right? I did. So I had a much better experience than you, I think. We'll get to that. Uh, so that's kind of my review of the film. Mm. What did you think of the film? I mean, I did know the twist going in. And I read a plot synopsis first. And I was kind of annoyed with the film, but in a way that I feel like I often am with the romantic comedies of this ilk. Mm. Where I just don't really enjoy the constituent elements of them that much. By the end of this movie, you know, uh, I was I was laughing. I had a song in my heart. The, the, the joy of Christmas entered into my life. Do I think this is a good movie? No. <laughs> Do I, did I get a lot of enjoyment out of watching how uh, sort of egregiously awful it was? Yes, I did. <laughs> and during that last tableau of Amelia Clark singing Last Christmas with the homeless people that she's befriended. <laughs> <laughs> Was I hysterically laughing? Especially when it cut back to her and, and Henry Golding's romance. I was. I was hysterically laughing. Uh, because that scene is really funny. Now, Hugh... Well, you, you were the only one in the theater, right? I was. So I could laugh as much as I wanted without fear of retaliation. I had to suppress my laughter, <laughs> and I still couldn't suppress my laughter. <laughs> it's, it's the funniest thing I've seen all year, I think. Glad you could still enjoy the experience of, of the twist, even knowing it in advance. But it's certainly heightened if it's unexpected. Mm. I think I think reading about the twist, I thought it was going to be more um, maudlinely executed, you know? Mm. Which it is, sort of. But the exuberance with which it, it goes into it, I thought was <laughs> very funny. Uh, I, I 100% agree that uh, watching this movie with someone who hadn't seen it, did not know anything about it, would be great. 
Just as an experiment in a in a, a serpent's egg esque experiment in in control and pain. Uh, I thought that uh, we're gonna, we're going to get into this a bit, but uh, I thought the film's politics were uh, like like a lot of the romantic comedies you watched the show, a pretty hashtag woke screen. Uh, would you agree with me there? Yes, uh, I guess we'll we'll talk about it further. But the whole subplot where she helps the homeless is. <laughs> I thought I thought that I also thought that with the um, I'm so I'm so I'm so, so poisoned you uh, by by both right wing and left wing media that whenever I see a film like this, which seems to have colorblind casting, right, my my uh, hatred for liberalism becomes inflamed. <laughs> you know what I mean. Mm. It's it's very uh, token y the way it uses people of color and even its own weird vision of, of white ethnic identity, I think, is also really oddly executed. I mean, I did notice the fact that she they show like a number of one night stands for Amelia Clark before she meets Henry Golding. And I think all but one are not white, right? I honestly don't remember. It seemed to want to get points for wokeness, you know? Yes. And uh, I, I am very non-generous with my woke points. Thank you very much. Especially, <laughs> especially in this neoliberal garbage. <laughs> where, where other races and ethnicities, the, the utopian ideal of that seems to be having a upmarket street fair where... Uh, ethnic people can sell their food to people who are white. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about this movie. Movie's politics. We should just say at this point that Amelia Clark is of partial Indian descent. Is she? <laughs> so, bet you feel pretty bad right about that. <laughs> but she's not playing a. Uh, she's not playing an Indian character. So, are there not Indian people in Yugoslavia? There's no one in Yugoslavia now. <laughs> <laughs> Were they not before they? Uh... I I I don't think. I mean, possibly there were some, but she is able to pass as a white woman. So. So that means her ethnicity doesn't count. Yes, that's what I was saying. She's not. She's not playing a wow. person of partially Indian descent in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it has no bearing on anything. Um, but I thought. I thought the way that um, Emma Thompson. Basically, playing this like weird uh, ethnic caricature was really weird. It was like really kind of off, you know. I mean, I, I kind of agree, and that's why I've been looking at the Wikipedia pages of both Amelia Clark and Emma Thompson to see if either of them have like a background in that direction. It does not. It does not seem that way. But this film really reeked of like I'm a rich liberal who wants to say something about Brexit, you know. And uh, I did not enjoy that. Got some good shots in there. Made, a, made made some great points about you know every every liberal movie every movie that is liberal and has a political bit is like we just need to love people and be you know and uh, and and have empathy and that that'll make everything good. No need to to shake the boat too much. The message of this film was stated explicitly at one point, mm. and that message is helping each other makes us feel happy. Yeah, makes makes me feel happy, Hugh. Uh, a well-funded NHS <laughs> and a closed border. <laughs> but um, I, I think that uh, the the homeless subplot of this is really bizarre. That was that was the most I think egregious 
element of this film's work screen, I think. The, the solution to homelessness that it presents is ridiculous. <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we spoil the twist now, Yo. Can I just say, before we get to the, the twist, actually, mm. because I knew that there was going to be a ridiculous twist in this film, I sort of started to speculate what it could be. Because it's, it's really building towards this revelation of what's going on with Henry Golding. Why does he keep disappearing? Is he just afraid of commitment or is there something else? Mm. It's clear there's something else. Before we get to the proper twist, we do get Amelia Clark's medical condition explained. Well, it's, it's, not even, it's not even explicitly stated what she has. It's just the specific area of the body is, that it has been affected. Like, they reveal what the operation was. Yeah. And that was a heart transplant. Mm. So my feeling at that point was like, yeah, very funny. Last Christmas I gave you my heart. Ha ha ha. This is how they're dealing with that. The, the, the scene where they like literally do the dialogue was really funny. That's not the big twist, but... That's a way of winking at the lyrics of the song, right? Oh, contraire. But uh, would you care to tell the listeners what the actual revelation was or is? Well, Hugh, it is that um, Henry Golding, an Asian man, gave his life and his heart so that Amelia Clark might live. What, you mean after like they've established a relationship, she gets in an accident and then he donates her heart? No, 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 Hugh. It turns out... It turns out that Henry Golding is a ghost man. What? Yes. That he died one year previous to the events of the film. The same day that Amelia Clark's heart, her original heart, stopped working. So they took Henry Golding's heart. And this is, this is the second movie from Britain that we've watched this year. That features someone getting hit by a bus on a bike. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he dies that and via that traditional method that, that is, that is currently, um, just killing all sorts of people in Britain. I've heard, so I've heard, and his heart goes into Amelia Clark's body. Wait, so you're saying he literally gave her yeah. his heart. I don't, I don't really know what, how they adapted the, uh, rest of the lyrics of that song, but. And he, and it happened last Christmas. First of all, has there been a good film or a successful film inspired by anything other than a true story? And I mean, not just inspired by in terms of how they came up with it, but they actually attribute the inspiration in the credits. Mm, that's, a, that's a good question. Yeah, so it, says, it actually says in the credits, inspired by the song Last Christmas by George Michael. Gives him a credit, a posthumous credit. And how many, how many times would you say they played that song in this movie? About five yeah, something like that. Plus the little jingles that all the toys play. Uh, a lot. Not a bad song. I can see that. I mean, like, you could do a lot worse than selecting a catalogue of George Michael hits for the soundtrack to a rom-com. Yeah. It actually works fairly well. But I just like the idea of being inspired by the song, like hearing the song and saying, how can we make a Christmas movie around this? And then coming up with the idea where you just hear the first line, okay... Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. I gave you my heart. I gave you my heart. I've got it. I've got it. This. <laughs> I would pay money to watch her write this movie. Uh, yeah. I, as soon as that bit was revealed, I, I did burst out laughing in the really small cinema. <laughs> so that, you probably uh, ruined someone's perfectly pleasant experience. Probably did. Yes. I also laughed at the way they revealed the twist as a cross between Fight Club and The Sixth Sense. 
Oh, that was funny. Yeah, I also enjoyed that quite a bit. Because they flash back to all the earlier scenes and it's just Amelia Clark alone on a bench or something instead of both of them. You know, just like Fight Club. Let's quickly talk about the homeless stuff. So I guess the main arc of the film, the main character arc of the film is uh, Amelia Clark. Amelia Clark learning a lesson about herself and improving her life. Yes. And homelessness is treated as a component of her journey to self-discovery. Yes. But that's how, that's how this is keep in keeping with the way that the um, film treats all of its, you know, minority characters. Mm. That's why, that's why I feel like the woke screen is very apt. Indeed, this film is almost like a, a uh, treatise on liberal uh, self-absorption via the auspices of self-care. And what annoys me is there was like a there was like a moment in which they could have properly critiqued her motivations for suddenly helping the homeless, and they they sort of shy away from it. They gesture towards it because one of the characters who you know works at the homeless shelter and deals with it day in day out is very skeptical about Amelia Clark's sudden interest and and sudden contribution. But they have another character who immediately um, is um, you know supportive so yeah he's presented as being too skeptical yeah and then he comes around i did find the um way that it presented the how the homeless should um raise money by um performing to be a little ghoulish because mm. like you um you know what the homeless should be just be given money by the state <laughs> so vote one corbin yep so if you see last christmas instead of uh Getting angry at his politics, um, go ahead and slam one in the voting booth for uh, J- old JC, old Jez Corby. Oh, I also thought the film's sexual politics were questionable, which, Hugh, is something that applies to all three of the films that we watched tonight. Mm. And that the way it sort of demonized her, um, and this is par for the course, but it seemed to have one have it a little bit both ways, and that didn't really want to condemn her from promiscuousness yeah there you go that's what i was looking for um but it seems to want to um say like, it's okay that she's promiscuous but it also ties that to her uh, unhappiness so we don't put off by that yes I, I i think that's very commonly done that way these days when they establish the character and their life they're often like look we're okay with the fact that she's promiscuous it's fine we're not even going to say but also she shouldn't be if she wants to be happy, she should stop being a slut. Yeah, we're not going to denigrate her, but always the arc of the film is to move away from that lifestyle. Yeah, always. It's a monogamy. Especially heterosexual monogamy. Yes. As is the case in this film. You, you, you alluded to this, but I think it's worth explaining mm. exactly what you meant. Please. So not, we, we get the ridiculous twist, which is, you know, objectively hilarious. Yeah. And if, if you don't laugh at that, then there's something wrong with you. And like the, the way the film treats it so earnestly as well is, is doubly hilarious. <laughs> yes, for sure. But then there's the scene where they do the pageant to raise money for homelessness. And, you know, Amelia Clarks starts singing Last Christmas. And then just to remind you about the parallels between the line Last Christmas I gave you my heart <laughs> and the plot point in which a character gives her her heart. <laughs> we get a flashback to their relationship. We get, we get several flashbacks. Cross-cutting. That was beautiful. Were you aroused by the scene where he touches her scar? It reminded me a lot of um, Video Drove. <laughs> it got, you, got, you, you got your body horror kicks in an unexpected place in Last Christmas. Yeah. 
So on one of the early dates, Tom is like a, a bit of a free spirit mm. and he's dancing around in the street and showing her parts of London that, you know, she had overlooked signs and stuff that she hadn't seen before and saying, look, look how great everything is. It's right under your nose and no one looks at it, but I'm such a great free spirit, nice, handsome guy that I, you know, I notice these things. Mm. I'm taking you on a magical journey. Mm. And, and the thing he keeps saying is, look up, you know, look up uh, in the sky, God. look up at the top of buildings, look at signages, right? And then when it's revealed that, you know, he's dead and she's in this park that, that he showed her, the ghost, yeah. we then see that the bench that they were sitting on was actually dedicated to his memory. And it quotes him. <laughs> <laughs> and it says, look up. <laughs> Is the quote that I guess he says to everyone in his life so frequently that they? <laughs> I do. I do think it's funny. I do think it's it, it's a, it's a strange part of this movie that he essentially has no life uh, outside of like his apartment. You know, he doesn't exist. He's a ghost. Yeah, but I'm saying like I, I figured there would be like the way it would be revealed would be like oh you know she meets his mom or something like that. But he has no history. Uh, I don't know. There's just something strange about the fact that he basically is just this avatar of good. You know. Hmm. There, a lot of the pleasure I had while watching Last Christmas was imagining you going into it, excited to have this pure Christmas confection, rom-com perfection, and knowing that what you desired was not on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go. Maybe there's an element of sadism to my pleasure in Last Christmas. Although arguably what we, what we got was a more memorable experience. Yes. And probably more enjoyable for both of us. Yeah. Okay. Well, then uh, let's jump into our next segment, the um, well-loved uh, pizza story. Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza. Lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a pizza story. Dig them fights. You have yet any pizza experiences over the last week? No. Have you? I have not. So that's two weeks in a row where pizza story is more like Pulitzer's new pizza story in that it sucks. <laughs> Presumably. <laughs> so let's move on to our new project, um, which we talked about not well, I don't think, at the top of the show. No, we need to explain the project now. Project time, it's project time. 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 It's the start of a new project, and I can't wait to start. Turkey, tomato, ba 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 da ba. So what this product is, Hugh, is that we chose 10 directors. Should we list them off now or should we uh, allow each one to be a surprise in the episode that it is? Let's allow it to be a surprise. Well, we chose 10 mystery directors and then looked at their lowest rated film on Rotten Tomatoes. And if it was below 30%, we kept it. If not, we discarded it. We chose 10 of these. 10 directors that we respect, we like. We have a sense of their overall filmographies. And we come not bearing knives, but rather flowers and an open mind. 
perhaps some of these movies are misunderstood masterpieces, misappreciated by the critics of their time or of our present time because they do not conform to what critics believe the mode of filmmaking that these directors uh, make. Um, so we're kind of sifting for gold, I'd say. I think we should keep to the Thanksgiving theme mm. and uh, frame it as if these films are turkeys in a paddock and we're deciding whether to turn one into Thanksgiving dinner, as its reputation would suggest, mm. or pardon it and let it roam free to gobble again. A la Trump. Yes, indeed. So that's, that's, that's one rating metric, I think. Another one I thought would be funny to do would be at the end of, the, of our discussion, we uh, say what the Rotten Tomato score is, okay? And then say if we would rank, rate it that, that much. Mm. <laughs> what our exact percentage rating would be. We should also explain that the order that we're discussing these films in is based on the, the Rotten Tomatoes score. Yeah, it's descending order, so the highest one is first. Yes, the most acclaimed <laughs> of the least acclaimed is first. Yes. Uh, so to start this ma magical journey, um, we're venturing into the land of America. America is seen by Americans? No. America is seen by someone else from an Anglophone nation? No. Well, partially. But rather, America as seen through the eyes of superstar new German cinema director Wim Wenders and his trusty story writer, uh, YouTube frontman Bono, with his <laughs> film The Million Dollar Hotel, which has a mere 25% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm Jesus for your sins. Wash the rain off and take out the bins. Yeah, I'm pounding for you like a tom tom tom. Um, okay, so the Million Dollar Hotel. Indeed, Bono does have a story credit on mm. this film. He also has a uh, celluloid credit too that he appears in the film. Yes, he has a very brief cameo. A brief but not um, out of the way cameo, I say. Um, so yes, he famously conceived the idea of this film during a music video shoot a number of years earlier. You, you don't say. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> the screenplay was eventually credited to Nicholas Klein. Mm. This is, who has any other credits? He has a couple of other credits, but I believe this was his last <laughs> screenplay credit. <laughs> Mysterious. Before I commit to that fact, let's quickly double check because he doesn't have a link on Wikipedia. Uh, he's also credited for writing the YouTube music video, The Gravity of Their Feet, which is presumably called from footage from this movie. If I had to make a guess. Uh, and also, which is presumably why he wrote this movie, writing Vinder's previous film, The End of Violence. The ground beneath her feet was uh, recorded for this film. So yeah, I presume... That is what that video is. I'll, I'll watch the video while you're uh, talking, and then uh, I'll report back. Ground Beneath Her Feet, interesting story, co-written by Salman Rushdie. <laughs> well, read the uh, Wikipedia page, because co-written, quote-unquote... No, no, like he took it from a book. Yeah. Like they didn't sit down together to write the song. But yeah, the lyrics were from a, a Salman Rushdie book. Mm. A writer who I've never read and have no interest in reading. Because you support the fatwa. Yeah. Well, this is already so much better than than uh, than I could have predicted. 
What what is what are you talking about? <laughs> the gravity their feet music video. Yeah, I just need you to watch like the first thirty seconds. This is so funny. Alright. I challenge you not to laugh during the, this part. Oh god, I don't want to really relive any part of this film. <laughs> no spoilers. Sorry. Who was that? <laughs> the Salmon Rushdie. <laughs> <laughs> That's why this happened was so funny. I thought that was Donald Logue. <laughs> First, like no. when I was just in the window. Wow, weird racist. Um, all right, back to back to the story. Where are we? Back to summarizing. Back to Wikipedia. All right. Oh, no, Nicholas Klein does have a link. Never mind. Does he? Yeah, he does. In the actual... No, maybe it's just... Maybe it's like... They just didn't link side. him on the side. They made a mistake mm. there. But he's got his own link. Weirdly. He's an American labor union advocate, an attorney. Yeah, that's gotta be that's gotta be someone else. That's gotta be someone else. That's gotta be someone else, yeah. But it's on the million dollar hotel page. <laughs> well, someone fucked up. I mean, is it someone else? Are we sure? Yeah. It says it gave a speech in nineteen eighteen. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> he could have been alive in the year two thousand. Maybe. <laughs> That's true, but he's not writing any fucking Bono movies. You probably have to be like at least a hundred and something. <laughs> even at that time. Yeah. Okay, come on. Let's get, let's get on with it. All right. The Million Dollar Hotel, Bono wrote it with Nicholas Klein. And uh, it's centered on this hotel where various outcasts and junkies are living. They might have a mental condition. They might have a drug problem. You know, they're outcasts from society. And they all live in this cheap hotel called the Million Dollar Hotel. Hmm. Ironic. Jeremy Davis is our guide through this world. Jeremy Davies. Jeremy Davies. Do you know what the confusion is there? Sometimes I do that because if you're English and your name is spelt Davies, it's usually pronounced Davis Hmm. for some reason. Like the guys from the Kinks, Dave Davies and... Ray Davies. Ray Davis. I think it's just Ray Davis, sure. but it's spelt Davies. I've only, I've only ever heard Ray Davies, but I maybe I haven't heard any British people say it, so... It's common in, in England for that to be pronounced Davis, for whatever reason. Because British people are dumb. Anyway, so Jeremy Davis as Tom Tom is our main guide through this world. We're actually introduced to him as a guy jumping off a rooftop to a U2 song. Mm. So we're presuming when we see him again, that, that it's flashed back and it's going to lead back up to his suicide or his suicide question mark. Mm. And uh, then we discovered that uh, one of the residents of this hotel has died. Maybe it's a suicide, but maybe it's something more sinister. And uh, the police are investigating at the behest of the wealthy father of the deceased person. The slightly anti-Semitic character. Mm. Is a sort of rich Jewish media mogul. Yes. And he's putting a lot of pressure on the, the lead investigator, played by one Mel Gibson. <laughs> well, do you want to hear something funny? That's it. I don't want to digress too much. But um, <laughs> this is actually pretty great, which is that uh, Tim Roth, I, was, I, was, I wanted to check and see if he was Jewish, okay? <laughs> but he is not Jewish. His father was born in Sheeps, Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, to a family of Irish descent. He changed his surname from Smith to the German-Yiddish Roth in the 1940s to express solidarity with the victims of the Holocaust. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty funny. So, 
I guess good on uh, Daddy Roth there. Um, and also, with the you know undercurrent of perhaps anti-Semitism in this film, the name of Tim Roth's character, the full name, is Izzy Goldkiss. <laughs> well, but, and what is Izzy short for? <laughs> Isaiah? Uh, I believe it is Israel, but I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. That rings a bell, actually. Which is funny. So, yes, Tim Roth as Israel Goldkiss, <laughs> to give him his full birth name. Uh, Although maybe he changed his name to Goldkiss in solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this film does, like, you know, it has an aura of anti-Semitism just by virtue of the presence of Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's also by the fact that he's played, like, a, uh, you know, uh, brutal FBI agent. Anyway, so the father of the dead resident wants... Detective Skinner, Mel Gibson, to find a culprit because he doesn't believe his son would have committed suicide. In a, in a bizarre scene. And even if, he, if, even if it was proven that he did commit suicide, he doesn't want that story to get out because it would reflect badly on him as a parent. Yeah. The other main uh, plot point is that the media mistakenly gets the impression that the deceased resident was a painter. The work was actually done by another resident and a group of these outcasts form an alliance in order to exploit this misapprehension the media is under Mm. and sell the artwork of the deceased person for exorbitant amounts of money. Sorry to interrupt again. Did you know that Mel Gibson is currently directing a sequel to The Passion of the Christ? No. (laughs) Yep. And what what happens in the sequel? Uh, He comes back? I don't know. I don't know how much The Passion of the Christ covered. I've never seen it. But it, feel, it feels like it covered, like, the narrative bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where you go from that. <laughs> Just, it goes to heaven. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's an adaptation to the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> <laughs> he comes back in a cave. That's it. Yeah, then he comes back and has sex with a woman and has a, has a Wi-Fi. That's the Holy Grail. You have a chimera of the Da Vinci Code? Of course, of course. Yeah. I will say, like, I don't have any particular interest in reading Dan Brown specifically, but I'm, I'm an absolute sucker for that genre. Of, like, real historical conspiracy thriller? Yes. Where you where there's the... Especially the... Usually the end of it I don't really care about, but the investigation of going around libraries mm. and decoding random paintings and, and all that shit. You should watch... Um, you should watch The Ninth Gate. Yeah, I've seen The Ninth Gate. Well, there you go. That's the bit I liked of The Ninth Gate, and then the end is, like, ridiculous. <laughs> Too, too long. I saw The Ninth Gate at the movies when it was released with my parents, oddly enough. They were like, we need to, this kid needs to learn about Roman Polanski. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't like super young at the time. When was it released? It's like 96 or something like that. Wow, I was like 12. <laughs> <laughs> so. 99, there you go. Oh, uh, never mind. Yeah, I guess, guess it's something. How old am I then? 13? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, 13. That's pretty young. So I guess I wasn't that that's, old. That's, yeah, that's pretty that's young pretty... for the ninth gate. It was MA15+, plus and I was under the age. So. There's like a sexy did it, I think. I was under the recommended age. It doesn't matter. It's just a funny movie to see with your parents, I think. Alan Garfield's in uh, the ninth gate. Garfield's in the ninth gate? Alan Garfield. Oh. Who uh, I best known for, of course, in the great um, Brian DePaul film Greetings plays a pornographer who tries to sell Robert De Niro bestiality pictures front of the nice. uh front of in front of some art museum maybe the um what do you call it the 
not the MoMA, the, what do you call it? Oh, okay, it's in there. Okay, whatever. Anyway, go ahead. Guggenheim. Yeah, that's it. I've never been there. Um, what am I talking about? It's the Night Gate. What did you think of the film The Million Dollar Hotel? Does it deserve its uh, reputation as being a stinker? <laughs> you know, Hugh, I, I think you're going to dislike my opinion on this one. Uh, but I have to say, uh, I, I did not enjoy this film by any metric. But I did find it almost, in part, compulsively watchable. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's something boondoggly about this movie that I quite enjoyed. Uh, even if all the characters are obnoxious, the sequences with uh, Milo Jovovich and uh, Jeremy Davies, especially, I thought were really uncomfortable. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're both essentially playing these like mentally challenged characters who are you know, having this dumb romance. All their dialogue feels like it was improvised and really poorly. And there's something weird about them, like, touching each other in weird places. And it just, it just made me uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, Mel Gibson, I thought, was... His character was... <laughs> oh, it's, it's so funny. <laughs> I think it, it should be telling that you didn't need to say anything. You just needed to say Mel Gibson to remind me of Mel Gibson in this film. And I burst out laughing and almost <laughs> spit my tea everywhere. It's the, it's the funniest fucking thing. <laughs> For some reason... He has this bizarre collar, you know, and there's an opening in the film where he's like taking pictures of something. And it's like, is this like a weird high tech thing? But then he, it's like he's like this like fake skeleton or something. I don't know. He had no. He so uh, he grew up in a. F- I, I know what it is. Yeah, he grew up in a freak show. He had an extra hand on his back so he could wipe his ass while playing the violin. I think it was a whole arm coming out of his back. Yeah, that's what I meant. And then he got the hand removed. Enjoyed normal society. Yeah. He's like a he's like a freak like the people in the hotel. Um, and you know what, Hugh, there are moments in this film that I thought were genuinely beautiful or poetic, but the most, for the majority, it's, what? it's, it's yeah, there are some shots I quite liked. Wow. There, there's the shot of Jeremy Davies looking out of his hotel room. It's well lit. I really like the opening shot that's just this, like, moody, sort of languorous helicopter shot through L.A., and I thought the cinematography was okay. But uh, whenever Jeremy Davies' voiceover came on, I wanted to die. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought his character was really bizarre and offensive. His his haircut is hilarious. I I honestly, when I was on this movie, I was like, I didn't know what to make of it. And I thought it was just bizarre. I just didn't understand. I mean, I guess it made sense. It, 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 when you picture a film that was based on a story idea by Bono, I feel like this is what comes to mind. This is like the perfect articulation of that. And the movie that it reminded me more of anything else here was one of your favorite films of all time. Master Anonymous. Yes. <laughs> Which is a similar, I know. similarly insane quality to it that, that is borderline offensive. It's filled with all this bizarre... I, I will say that Master Anonymous is, is more quotable. I will return to that point by making the same point when it gets to my turn. <laughs> I, I did not... I, I, there are parts of this movie that I, I thought were loathsome, but, um, yeah, there's something compulsively watchable about it. Just as, like, a what the fuck, why did anyone make this sort of thing? Hmm. So, that's how I thought I'd feel about it. Okay. What, do you, what did you think? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Believable. I would say this is one of the most unpleasant experiences I've had <laughs> watching a film. Wow. That's intense. And the thing is, like, there are there are things in this that I could enjoy on, like, a Marston Anonymous style 
level again i'll return to that so so maybe maybe this is by maybe this is by best anonymous maybe it is but the problem is like the way the film is paced and Mm. put together sort of denies you that pleasure Mm. mastodonis definitely moves better it was like it was so tediously and pretentiously drawn out yeah that's true that I, I was, like, in absolute agony <laughs> waiting for it to finish. That's right, buddy. So, like, you, you kind of get all the funny bits after a certain point of this film, and then there's a lot of it to go. If, if, it, if it was, like, 70 minutes, this would be great. But uh, the fact that it is, is two hours... Yeah, yeah, it could be, like, a decent 70-minute, like, bizarre car crash <laughs> experience. Or even if it was only a, a 90 minutes, it would be better. And, you know, I, I was, in a non-performative way actually saying out loud <laughs> fucking die get to the rooftop die <laughs> i did i did think the final image of the film where Mila jovich is hugging Mel gibson it was so bizarre mm. yeah there's a lot of bizarre things in this film because i you know i just wanted to enjoy like how ridiculous the whole mel gibson element in this film is as this like weird cyberpunk biohack detective it, it definitely feels uh you know, the movie that Mel, uh, that Mel Gibson, that um, Vendors made previous to this, I think immediately previous, maybe I'm skipping number one, was Until the End of the World. Just as sort of a, from what I've heard, a cyberpunkish vibe. Oh no, I take it back. He made like five films in between this and that. So never mind. Uh, Until the End of the World was like 91, wasn't it, or something? Yeah. I'm actually going to get that. It's, com- it's, I've, I, it's coming out in Criterion Blu ray next month. I've heard that's okay. Although I heard that was okay by someone whose opinion on films I do not trust at all, which is Adam Savage of Mythbusters. <laughs> if he said it was okay, then maybe it's great. No, no, he said it was good. Oh. He said it was really good and prescient in terms of its depiction of future technology. Whatever. But I, I mean, I quite like Vim Vendors. I don't know what, how you feel about him. So. Well, I can only comment based on Paris, Texas, which I liked, mm. but I haven't seen like Wings of Desire or anything else. You got to watch those movies. So the two films I've seen, yeah. uh, a good film and a really <laughs> bad film. <laughs> yeah so he's about uh, down the middle something seems to have, ha- to have happened to him around this time maybe he was him going to america after uh until the end of the world maybe he met bono <laughs> but bono uh, had music in um a bunch of his films so any good ones uh until the end of the world oh uh, yeah okay the, the, assuming that's good yeah I, i'm sure it is the 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 titular it's got song. sam neil in it which is a point in its favor mm. and it's like set in australia or something isn't it it's like a road trip movie i think they go all over the all over the world but there are parts in australia oh, okay right um uh yeah I, I really found this this genuinely excruciating yeah and i almost turned it off <laughs> there's something very unpleasant about it that's true it did yeah. it, it did take me like a bunch of like tries to get through you know what i mean Oh, well, there you go. I didn't watch it all in one go. I think if I if I divided up the experience, I probably would be much more positive towards this. But as a view, as as a two hour viewing experience, it is insufferable. I think you know. I think I think watching it, it's excruci- excruciating. But when I look back on it, <laughs> there's so many things that I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> that it, I I am, I am happy that I watched this. Um, but yeah, I I I completely agree that it does. It does bring Masked and Anonymous to mind. Mm. Obviously, both films were conceived by successful rock stars. Yes. And despite their transparent attempts to portray and satirize contemporary concerns around 
don't know, the media and social yeah, whatever, inequality whatever. and other <laughs> hot, hot button issues. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. There's a complete disconnect with reality on display. Yes, which is befitting a rich r- 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 rock star. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like we're intercepting a transmission from a different planet yeah, that has never made yeah. contact with humans. Yeah, it's definitely true. I mean, it makes sense specifically in this case that this comes from someone who spent years fronting an astronomically successful mm. rock group. Yeah. Definitely. And it's certainly no surprise to learn that um, Bono came up with the idea during a video shoot. Yeah, it definitely feels like a music video. Now, that video shoot, by the way, was for Where the Streets Have No Name. Mm. And it's an obscene, no doubt costly, vanity production that sees U2 performing on a rooftop in LA, Beatles style, to an adoring crowd. Mm. And they actually restored an existing sign for the Million Dollar Hotel. And put it on the rooftop. Mm. That's what set Bono's mind ablaze, I guess, in between um, messianic posturing. I, w- I would love to read a book about how this, this script came together for this. Mm-hmm. How much do you think... Bo- I mean, obviously, this this feels like a U2 song, you know? <laughs> but this is about the level of U2's satire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. Where it's like, everyone watches too much TV, man. Yeah. That's it. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think U2... If you like them, they're not a band that you go to for any sort of, like, lyrical depth at all. No. Um, you like them because their music sounds good. Uh, which is certainly why I like them. And sometimes Bono's singing is, is decent. His lyrics are bad. <laughs> Everyone can agree on this. Mm-hmm. So, like, that, I, that, yeah, you're right. Like, if you imagine what movie Bono would conceive of, it'd probably be this. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, this is what would happen. So, in some ways, this is the perfect articulation of... Of what it what it is. This is the platonic ideal of, of the thing that it is. And in a similar way, like I can imagine Bob Dylan knocking out a draft of Marston Anonymous from like the global hotel room that is his life. <laughs> but I think the frustrating part, as I said about the Million Dollar Hotel, is that Fenders really does deny you the pleasure of in enjoying its bizarre misfires. Mm, that's or at true. least he he wears that pleasure out of you. Yeah. By the end of the film. That's true. It is, it is way too long. Neither this nor Master Anonymous function on the level the creative team wants them to function. But I think Master Anonymous at least makes a room for you to laugh at it. Mm. I think perhaps it's because Larry Charles is a less accomplished yeah. or competent director. Yeah. I do. I, I, like I said, there are, there are images of this film that I do think work for me, but the rest of it is scratch. I mean, I don't think there's anything to compare with I think what we can agree is an undeniably transcendent moment of Master Anonymous, mm, which is where um, Giovanna Rubisi <laughs> is monologuing this nonsense to like an impassive, non-acting Dylan in the back of a bus. <laughs> that seems so funny. So Master Anonymous is tedious in its own way. Yeah, I, I definitely found it more tedious than you did. I think you did. But the way Master Anonymous was tedious is kind of like the way like an elderly relative might be mm. tedious if you get into a conversation with them. You kind of love them anyway, you know. Yeah, this is tr- this this is trying too hard. Yeah, I think Million Dollar Hotel is an order of magnitude more tedious. I, I could see arguments for that, and it's compounded by its attempt at profundity. Yeah, or at least the fact that we know Vim Vendors is capable of so much better. Yeah. That that's an additional layer of frustration. I, I, I bet it's just him getting paired with a shitty um, screenplay more than anything. I mean, not, you could, if you had this screenplay, I can't imagine a way of making it good. Yeah, so that's what I'm, 
I feel like I feel like the specific way he he shoots films is ill matched to it anyway. You know what I mean? Like the the um, sort of poetics of his cinema do not. Um, I don't think they suit high concept satire. No, definitely not. Which this is kind of, I guess. <laughs> but I, you know what? I feel like the things that about it that are transcendently bad. I, I thought the scene where it cuts back and forth between Gibson. Um, with his like scarred back on that like hospital bed is like listening to um, Jerry Davies and Mila Jovovich. That's some of the funniest shit I've seen in my entire life. And that's that's where it, like bizarrely leans into body horror stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed how stupid that sequence was, and I liked how incompetently it was done too. Because like you feel like um, I, it almost feels like this film was like taken away from vendors at some point as well. There's something about the editing that just feels off, you know. Hmm. Like, like that scene, like you feel like it should just be like a a uh, cross cutting sequence, but then it randomly cuts to other parts of of the hotel, and you're like, why is this in here? Like, it doesn't make any sense on any level why this sequence is inserted. One thing that that like got me excited early on, hmm. because I know that Vin Vendors often casts non acting musicians in his films. He does. When we're introduced to one of the residents who. You know, who acts like John Lennon and and thinks he's uh, he wrote all the Beatles songs. That part was insufferable. I was like, oh my god, it's Dave Berman from the Silver <laughs> Jews, the late Dave Berman, your dad. That's funny because he looked so much like him. I I did not uh, have that mistake. I was like, oh, it's Peter Stormare. But I was like, obviously, it can't be Dave Berman because he's actually trying to sing. Mm. And that's not really what Dave Berman does, in that way, at least. Okay, great. Um, all right. So are we going to try to choose some more blood from the stone, or should we move on to another film? Maybe we should mention the famous anecdote, because it is on the Wikipedia page, around the publicity of this film. Please, go ahead. So during the, the press circuit, Mel Gibson, apparently one of the producers, although I didn't see him listed, was uh, worn down from his duties of having to promote the film, that he let slip that he actually thought it was boring as shit. (laughs) Which, you know, I don't agree with Mel Gibson on a lot of things, but I have to say that's a fairly accurate summation. I'm 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 actually going to disagree with them. Because even though this film is, like, insufferable, boring is not the word I would uh, go to. I guess, like, torture isn't boring. (laughs) No. (laughs) I guess we can completely disagree with Mel Gibson, then. Yeah. (laughs) This character, this one was so inexplicable. What's the same? Okay, so uh, is this a turkey that you would pardon, Hugh? No, I would, I would eat this raw. <laughs> That's not very nice. I wouldn't even do it the honor of cooking it. Okay. What would you do to it? Um, I would, I would cook it. I think. Okay. Yeah, but I'd still eat it. It's, it's not, it's not good. But I, I did it by myself. I think, on the whole. Would you give it all the fixings? Or just, stuffy, just straight yeah, up cook uh, it. Uh, let's stuff it. Yeah, sure, sure. I, 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 sides? I, I, no sides. Um, I do not regret my time watching this film, but I do not think it is a good film. But I do, I do think you can. I do think there's pleasure to be had in it. Um, and what is your revised rating? The base rating was twenty five. Well, we we can't really rank a, a Rotten Tomatoes percentage ourselves because that's just 25% of critics. Yeah, but what percentage would you give it? What percentage of me gives it a positive review? Yeah. 0%. <laughs> so it's a zero. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think what percentage of 100 would you give this film? 
So I have a fictionary stable of 100 critics. Yeah. All of whom are you. <laughs> How many of them would give this a negative review yeah. if they're all me? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'll give this a positive review, sorry. What? What? Zero. Okay, just think about it on a, a, a rank it, score it out of 100. Fine, I'll score it out of 100. And then we'll just say percent. Yeah. To be in keeping. Yeah. Even though it's fundamentally... Di- anyway, uh, <laughs> I would... I would give this like two uh, percent. <laughs> well, that's up pretty well. What would you give it? I'd say about thirty, uh, maybe thirty-five, something like that. Not good. So you give it a higher rating than uh, its rot- current Rotten Tomatoes score? Yes, I would. You want to salvage its reputation by like four Rotten Tomatoes percentage points? That's right. All right, um, let's move on to Ingmar Bergman's The Serpent's Egg. Babe, I'm drunk as hell, out of work as well. The serpent's head will break the serpent's egg. All right, so this is uh, an Ingmar Bergman film. It's set in, uh, it's set in Berlin. Yes, because uh, of self-exile. Because Ingmar Bergman was in tax exile. Sort of. Was it not tax exile? So, basically, he got um, he got arrested when he was rehearsing this play in Sweden because of this sort of fraudulent, not quite fully like legit tax evasion charge, right? Which he was later pardoned for, I believe. Right. So they had to do with like a weird company but he had like resolved it before and they arrested him for no reason basically and this was so shattering to Bergman that he left Sweden and swore never to return and he moved to Germany so a self-imposed exile yes so tax exile is also self-imposed but it's more like you don't want to pay the high taxes in the country that you're exiling yourself from which is I don't think is the case here yes and he stayed away from Sweden until Fanny and Alexander, I think. So, it's a solid like 10 years or so of his life. Most of the 70s. And he made this film. So, this is set in Germany. It was a joint production between West Germany and America. Yeah. In terms of where the money came from, at least. Produced by famed Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis. Mm-hmm. Um, who, you know, most of we produced such great films as Blue Velvet and Dune. Among other classics. And it's set in Berlin between the First and the Second World War. Mm, yes. So it's sort of Berlin in recovery from the devastation that was wreaked upon Germany in the aftermath of the First World War. Yeah, yeah, it recovered into Nazi Germany is what you're saying. Exactly. And, and Bergman is looking at the, the transition between the Germany of that time and, and what it later became. Yes, that is, that is the main topic of this film in a roundabout way. But we follow specifically Mr. David Carradine mm. as an out-of-work uh, acrobat. American acrobat. An American Jewish acrobat who has an act with his brother. Mm. And uh, in an early scene in the film, he discovers his brother has shot himself in the head. <laughs> Both this and uh, the Million Dollar Hotel open with a suicide. And then we follow... Uh, his name is Abel Rosenberg, We've, yes. the David Carradine character. We follow Abel as he 
deals with the death of his brother mm. and tries to get by in a society that is hostile towards him, mm. or becoming increasingly so. Yes. Um, he's joined by um, Bergman regular Liv Ullman, who plays the widow of his brother. <laughs> I just found the best Wikipedia page, mm. which is uh, the Wikipedia page that is just a list of people who uh, died via autoerotic fatality. <laughs> Does it include Michael Hutchins? Um, no. Or is that just a rumor? I think it's just a rumor. Okay. But it does include David Carradine, so. Um, um, where are we? Seven takes. So we follow, yeah, we follow Abel and, uh... Manuela. Manuela. Gosh, did you even watch this film? We follow Abel and Manuela. I watched it immediately after the other one. <laughs> anyway, we follow them around, you know, some stuff happens... Then uh, he gets he winds up in this weird facility working for this shady character who turns out to be performing experiments on humans. Yes. You know, some Bergman stuff happens. That's the film. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of an atypical film for him, I think, though. We both in terms of its language and the setting, but also just in terms of the uh, way it engages with politics in a way that isn't especially common for Bergman, I think. Not yeah, not not normally this directly, but no. I mean, he's directed a ton of films, so there yes. could well have been precedents. What did you think of the slap and take? Um, you know, he maybe it was just uh, uh, the proximity. I watched something as gloopy and uh, stupid as the Billion Dollar Hotel, with its um, sort of uh, um, dumb humanism. But uh, this film's bleakness, its nihilism, and uh, pretty depressed mood. Uh, I think were pretty appealing to me, so I I, I quite enjoyed this actually. Um, hmm. I think Carradine. Uh, I feel like a lot of the criticism of this film revolves around him. Uh, I don't think he's great, but I think he is suitably you know empty uh, in a way that I felt fit his sort of alcohol soaked character. Um, so I thought this was. Um, I don't know. I kind of like that it, it is so like weirdly formless in a way. I really enjoyed all the cabaret performances. It kind of reminded me of uh, the Cotton Club of all things. Hmm. Um, and there is just something about this film. I really like the climax a lot. There's this this bizarre like series of like um, violent and and weirdly sexual tableau that sort of like come out of nowhere for the most part. And the the ending is just so bizarre and kind of inexplicable that I I have to hand it to Bergman and I I really like this film so I mean is it as good as like his his greatest successes probably not but is it uh, has it been unfairly reputed uh, I think so so what do you think um, I think it I think it is a misfire mm. on some level but I also kind of enjoyed it. And I don't think it's a bad film. No, definitely not. The most overt error in this film appears to be the casting of, of David Carradine. And apparently he wanted Elliot Gould, who would have been perfect to play this character. I kind of agree that he sort of works, yeah. but I also think he sort of doesn't work, especially when he's required to speak. When he when he's required to, to emote, it doesn't really work. But when he's just sort of yeah, like... But just as a presence wandering around, he does kind of fit the character. It kind of reminded me of... Um, even though I think, uh, what's his name, is better in Model Shop than, than Carrie Monsieur, yes. but there's a similar quality to, 
to what's his name? Dave Bowman is the guy who plays in 2001. <laughs> what's his name? Jesus Christ. Gary Lockwood. Gary Lockwood, yeah. Um, He's better, though. Yeah, and, and I agree that the inherent unlikability that David Carradine effortlessly exudes <laughs> no matter what role he's playing yeah fits with the character quite well who's yes. a pretty unlikable guy in conception yeah my theory is as to why david carradine is in the serpent's egg mm. is because he kind of looks like max von sidow mm. you can see that phenotypically like the sort of shape of his face is is sort of similar to like a shaven young max von sidow yeah, I, I can see that. I think I um, like my uh, my Twitter description of him as like a mix is an exact midpoint between uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Chuck Norris. But you know, whatever. That seems to be the most obvious flaw. But I think the probably the biggest issue with the film is I don't think Bergman reaches what he's grasping mm. for. Yeah. In what he's trying to say about the transition that Germany underwent between the two world wars. Yeah, it doesn't quite depict. The, um... I think I think save for a couple of sequences and um, a couple of decent lines as well, it feels a bit superficial. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think I do think there's some sequences that really worked on just like a visceral level regarding that. Like I like to see where the cabaret gets broken up into. Yeah, no, I I agree. It does definitely work in bursts and it sort of captures the mood that he's going for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel like a lot of this film, there's too many like scenes where it's just. Carrie and Liv Ullman just, like, hanging out in an apartment, which are just not enjoyable at all, or meaningful in any way. But, yeah, this is not like... It's not like a car crash disaster, and yeah. it doesn't feel like a million miles away from your typical Bergman yeah. production. Yeah. The cinematography is really nice. Yeah, I would agree, but it's, it is shot by Sved Nyquist, so that makes sense, <laughs> you know? But also, the visual direction is good. Yeah, I agree. I like his persistence with the... Um, square frame. I'm not sure the exact mm. proportion, but the, the more four three ish size of the frame. I like the way Bergman uses that square frame. It feels appropriate to his visual style. Actually, I don't know if it had that square frame in the version that I watched. You could tell it was squeezed on the YouTube upload, but not so much that the original was sixteen nine. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it was one sixty six. So whatever that means. I don't know. He remains an assured pair of hands. Yeah. The production is still handsome and tasteful. <laughs> I do like the bits that do dip into tastelessness, though. Like that totally bizarre scene with the prostitutes. Mm. Which felt very sort of, um, I don't know, atypical for Bergman. But I quite enjoyed that sequence. <laughs> Just the thing, this like, weird bit of like confusing, like psychosexual like panic, you know? It's so strange. It sometimes feels like different genres are intruding on this film. Yeah. And then there's like a bit of an action mode. Yeah, and then it becomes like an action thriller when he's trying to escape the compound. And then he just like explodes to Ted. You're like, whoa, what the fuck? And then it ends, uh, or near the ending, we get the sort of bizarre long monologue that's almost like a Bond villain. Yeah, which is fitting because Goldfinger is in this. Did you get Just a Gigolo vibes? (laughs) I did. (laughs) It is pretty similar. Unemployed guy roaming across the streets of Berlin. Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's basically the same movie. <laughs> Obviously, Justin Jiggle is better. A sort of somewhat incompetent central performance. Yeah. Though I think David Carradine is better. It has more presence than Bowie does in that film. Yes. Yes. 
And there's almost like a Hitchcock vibe to part of this too. Hmm. Is this the sequence where he's like following around Liv Ullman when she when he thinks he's going to when she's going to the um, poorhouse? And then ended the uh, final sequence too. I think also has sort of a Hitchcocky vibe where it's just like you know you're, it's revealed that people are watching. Right. It's a strange film. It is. I quite enjoyed the ending though a lot. Just mm. being lectured to by that like German guy, the way he kills himself, I thought was really bizarre. It <laughs> just like staring at staring at himself uh, as he's dying. I like the way he handled the violence in this film. Mm. Yeah, it's very. It's not uh, explicit. You don't see it on screen. It's not like viscerally done. No, but it's it's still somewhat graphically suggested. Like we get the initial reveal of his brother having shot himself in the head. I really like the way that he shot that. Yeah, it's well framed. You just see it through a doorway and the way the blood has been splattered against the wall, I thought was really well done. Yeah. And then there's, <laughs> during the thriller section of the film, yeah. he like uh, starts up this machinery which crushes a guy's head and it explodes. It's an elevator, I think. Yeah. But yeah, it just cuts to his head, just he needs like thrown blood all over it. This, this is definitely Bergman's most violent film, I think. Mm. It's, I, I would be interested to learn like what motivated him making this. I mean, obviously you could tell it's the product of someone who is going through some depressing stuff, right? It's interesting that according to Wikipedia, according to some supplementary material on a DVD, mm. he said he was pleased with the way the film turned out. Like, he didn't have any particular issues with it. That's funny. It's, it's, it's pretty close to the end of his like filmmaking career, though. Did you like the... Um... The reference to Germany Year Zero. What was that? Uh, the dead horse that gets cut into. Ah, is that is that what that it's a reference to? Yeah, there's a really famous shot of in Germany Year Zero where I think that it's, it's like weirdly there's this kind of unethical bit where uh, Rossellini said we just killed a horse and then just like filmed the people who were like repeated apart uh, in Berlin after the war. Hmm. So uh, in that meta cinematic text, he's he's. You know, suggesting how, um, I don't know. People eat horses. Yeah, people eat horses. There you go. So, um, would you uh, pardon this turkey, Hugh, or would you um, lead it to the slaughterhouse? I would pardon this turkey. And I guess if we're really really going to go for this analogy, we really have to transform the turkey into another bird. Really? Why? If you let it go, it's still a turkey. So you give it plastic surgery to resemble what bird? Uh, like a, would you, would you turn it into a duck or something? I don't know. What's the ugly duckling? What are they, t- a swan? A swan. Well, I just wanted that, uh, Gert Frobe, uh, Goldfinger himself, apparently, um, saved two Jewish people's lives by hiding them from the Nazis, so. Wow. So, not a bad guy. Except for all the money he stole, of course. And I don't have to say about the Serpent's Egg, but I, I don't think it's, nope. I don't think it's a bad film by any means. It's a swan. Yeah, uh, I don't think I'd go quite that far, but it's definitely a... Okay, well, what, it had a bit of turkey grit on it? Yeah. Okay, maybe it's just a duckling. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. This, this analogy is... I would also pardon it. Um, and what percentage would you give it? Out of 100%, mm-hmm. I would give this... Maybe like... 75 or something? Mm. Yeah, I'd say about the same. 75... Like a three, three and a half. Yeah, it's definitely uh, not one of his best films, but it's in no way the disaster that it is suggested that it is. No, it's an interesting film. Yeah, definitely. Now it's time for Burn, Hollywood Burn. Burn, 
Same uh, number one. To me? Uh, wouldn't surprise me. Alright. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Alright, let's uh, three, two, one. The weekend box office for November both countries. 20th, 22nd through the 24th is. Frozen Ford 2. Wow, what an upset. That just means Frozen 2 is not released here yet. Mm. How much did Ford v Ferrari make? 1.3. Wow. Actually, uh, just add um, two zeros to that number and you get how much Frozen 2 made in the United States last weekend. Wow. Yeah, $130 million. Uh, do you have a news item for us, Hunter? Uh, do you have a news item for us, Theo? Yeah. Okay, you do yours then. Uh, Netflix to keep New York City's Paris theatre open. Yeah, but I was gonna take. I was gonna take that one. <laughs> okay, I've, I've got one. Uh, Tyler Perry will make his Netflix debut with a Fall from Grace. It'll drop on January seventeenth. It stars Crystal Fox, uh, Facilia Rashad, Besha Webb, Celia Tice, or Cicely Tyson, and Perry himself, uh, according to Netflix's very cringy, strong Blackweed Twitter account. <laughs> A fall for race will be centered around a divorced woman who feels restored by a new romance. Those secrets soon start to erode her short-lived joy. Sounds great. Because in Australia, we're usually deprived of the cinematic world of Tyler Perry. This The, the name of this Twitter account is so cringy. I just can't believe like people let Netflix get away by calling their like black Twitter outreach thing this. It's Wait, so what? Weird. That's an official Netflix account? Yes. I think I think I think Netflix has like a bunch of weird Twitter accounts like that. Um, so let's move on to bo- bonus features. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. I watched two films as part of the Japanese film festival that is currently in town. Mm. The first of which was The Ghost of Yatsuya, mm. which is a Kaidon film. I'm not sure if Kaidon means supernatural folk tales or specifically ghost stories, mm. but that's where it derives from. And this story has been told many times. It's about a samurai's wife who is murdered by her husband and she, take, she takes revenge and she haunts him to death. Mm. Directed by Nabu Nakagawa, who is most famous for Jigoku, I think, mm. which I haven't seen. Yeah. I think this is the first film I've seen of his. I have seen that Criterion cover many times, though. I actually do really want to see it after seeing this. Mm. Good stuff. I enjoyed this a lot. This was really visually striking, mm. really nice use of, of color and the widescreen frame, the widescreen oh. frame. <laughs> You're starting out of order. It's okay. Just just push on. Really nice use of uh, the wise film. <laughs> nice use Good of film. film. Good film. I thought it was visually striking, and I really liked the horror effects. Because this, like The Million Dollar Hotel and, and some other films we maybe talked about today, mm-hmm. strays into body horror. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you you certainly have my you've intrigued my tastes. The samurai poisons his wife. Mm. The guy who gives him the poison is like this will defi- disfigure her face and give her horrible pain before she dies, mm-hmm. and that's what happens. Mm. So she starts to develop um, sores that kind of look like what we saw in organ, which mm. we also mentioned previously. And you know she's like going, "What's happened to me?" And she uses her comb to comb her hair and her, her hair just gets pulled away and she starts bleeding and it's really gross. It's kind of great. That does sound gross. I definitely would like to watch that. I would say like from a contemporary perspective, even though it's only 76 minutes, it feels a little bit like it outstays its welcome by the end mm. in the sense that it keeps sort of hammering home the same uh, cycle. But I, again, yeah, this, this does come from the Kaidon tradition and uh, Kabuki theater as well. So, but good stuff. Continue. The second film I watched was The Bride from Hades, mm. directed by Satsuyo Yamamoto. Mm. This is similarly a, a Kaidon story, and a ghost story specifically, mm. about a guy who gets into a sexual relationship with a ghost until it kills him. <laughs> Sounds hot. In contrast to the ghost of Yotsuya, it centers around a sympathetic character. Mm. And how, you know, it drives him to destruction. How could we, how could anyone resist having sex with the ghost? Whereas the samurai in um, The Ghost of Yotsuya is completely contemptible, like, the whole way through. Mm. It's a very bleak story. Okay. So this one, I, th- I think, is more, I don't necessarily think it's a better film, but it is more purely entertaining. Mm. And it does lean heavily on a, a farcical angle with some of the side characters. Mm. And it is quite funny as well, but it's also really well done. I really like the ghost effects, mm. even just the simple technique of using a rig or a dolly mm. so that when the ghosts are hovering by, they don't have the normal bob of someone walking. Right. It's really simple, but it works really well. And there's also some really great makeup effects. You know, like when he's sleeping with the ghost, the woman he's sleeping with looks beautiful and normal. Mm. But when like an onlooker is looking through the window, they look like this evil decomposing zombie thing and that was enjoyable it's like um last christmas exactly that that would have been a great touch even like a zombie <laughs> like she he, he looks like henry golding to her but to everyone else it's like this evil zombie thing anyway i enjoy that they are the only two films i watched mm. well i watched some films here i watched some films you probably heard about May have even seen. I watched Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. Have you seen that? Yes, I own that. Good stuff. Uh, I think you'll agree with me. Yes. Uh, I quite enjoy um, Claude Rains' character, especially. Mm. Uh, I think he's really fantastic. Um, and I just think it's a really well crafted uh, thriller from the Master of Suspense. <laughs> 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 Um, Tell me more about this master of suspense. Uh, well, it's this this Englishman named Alfred Hitchcock. I, I just enjoy the sadistic uh, angle of this film. Um, and I think all three of the leads are really great. Uh, and I like that Ingrid Bergman isn't playing like a... I don't know. She's kind of a hedonist, and I enjoy that about her character in this. And I thought it was really well-constructed. What do you think about Notorious? I remember liking it. That's all I can tell you. It's been years since I watched my DVD copy. The the um, way that it 
conjures up a uh, Rio de Janeiro out of backlit sets. I thought was really striking and strange. Um, so that very same day, I watched another film, you know, Pinocchio. Um, a film that I did not rate because I sort of half watched it while I was eating dinner and other things with my roommate and my girlfriend. Um, it's totally enjoyable, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I like, the, I, I will say one thing that I like about Pinocchio, which a lot of the other Disney movies lack, is that Pinocchio, not a very good person. <laughs> and I like that uh, the film is all about him being evil. The sequence set on uh, Pleasure Island is great. Um, I like that he's not a moral character. He's very easily corruptible. Uh, and that makes him a cut above most other Disney characters, who tend to be pretty, pretty pure-hearted in general, I think. There's a great scene where uh, he smokes. There's a weird anti-Semitic character, as you might expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me think. What else? What else about Pinocchio? Okay, it's the addiction. I don't know. Yeah. And then uh, I popped in my Blu-ray later that same day, uh, maybe to, to, to rid my mouth of the taste of Pinocchio, I popped in my newly acquired Blu-ray of Abel Ferreira's uh, completely bizarre uh, vampire film, The Addiction. Um, which is about a um, graduate student uh, played by Lily Taylor, who um, no, I guess gets a little too far into her graduate studies and starts drinking people's blood and gets addicted. Um, and has this like bizarre black and white style that's very documentary esque, but also very expressionistic too. It's sort of a, a push mm-hmm. and pull, pull between like the you know, these very artificial, um, I don't know, uses of lighting and stuff like that um, versus the uh, handheld and, and you know, documentary-esque shots of New York. Um, and it's just a really bizarre film <laughs> that I really loved. <laughs> uh, Christopher Walken has exactly one scene, which is amazing, where he's so basically... So it's kind of a Walken role. Yeah, yeah you got it. Yeah. Uh, where he basically plays like a reformed vampire. He's also like an ubermensch who comes in and like kidnaps Lily Taylor. He's like, I'll show you the way to be a god like me. And then he disappears from the film. It's great. It's a great film. I would highly recommend mm. it. Um, even if I can't, but I don't, if I can't quite wrap my head, wrap my head around it, um, I felt it very deeply as someone on a letterbox put it. So that's what she said. Um, that's all this weird stuff. It has all this weird stuff about the Holocaust and like, uh, the Mai Wang massacre and stuff like that. Uh, I didn't quite, I couldn't quite follow. It's almost like the main character has internalized sort of uh, the evil of humanity in a way. But I thought it was really uh, well done. So I've come to quite like Abel Ferreira. And I would recommend that you watch his films. Have you seen anything that he's made? Absolutely nothing. Mm. I, I dig him. So there you go. All right, that's it. Project A plus that was Project A plus Project A plus that was Project A plus Project A plus featuring the both of us. Project A plus now it's time to say thanks very much. Please stay in touch, otherwise we might lose the will to fight. Then we'll close down our website. We're gonna go make another show Now we have to
to say goodbye Hope you get that dream job Maybe meet a handsome guy We pray to God that you'll find happiness before